Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, here we are back together again without a week in between. I have to admit that uh, if it wasn't for this new book I'm working on, I'd be putting out two or three podcasts each week. I've got, uh, I guess, over 100 hours of material that's already been recorded, and my list of people I plan on interviewing keeps growing each week. Uh, I guess that's just a long-winded way of saying that it's nice to be back here with you again. Now, as uh, promised in the last program, I'm going to play the remaining 30 minutes of a trialogue between Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake that they uh, held in Santa Cruz, California in June of 1998. And their topic, as you'll recall, is skepticism and the balkanization of epistemology. And when we left our merry trialoguers in the last podcast, uh, I think Terrence had just said something like, Something is making the conversation difficult, and that's where I had to cut it off. Well, as you'll soon hear, it didn't take them long to go on from difficult to uproarious laughter. So let's listen. Question authority. That's the Something that is making the conversation difficult, and it has to do with propositions such as vitamin C is good for you may or may not be true and people of good faith may differ but when someone says people were cloned in vats 12,000 years ago and placed here by the denizens of an invisible 12th planet that's a different kind of proposition than that vitamin C is good I agree with you. I think you have a good point there. Yes, but what it, I think the way to the... I mean, I, I believe in this area, diversity and free market approach is fine. I think what I'd do to Dennis, the people who have that belief, is if I, insofar as I had funds and had any research responsibilities and so on in that area, I'd commission a review by somebody based in Santa Cruz uh, the first thing would be to leaf through the, um, uh, the common ground catalogue and just look at what's available of, of theories of where we came from there's hundreds of them in that catalogue the index of advertisers really runs over pages just start right there and then do a review article with all these different theories classified a kind of taxonomy of crank theories in a given field then one would see, then you'd have a sort of summary at the end, and you could have a sort of audience ratings within this class of theories. This would be sort of a national non-science foundation. Yes. And, uh, and it's called speculation, I was told. Well, I think it's a huge field, and it's in bookstores now. Yes. It's speculation. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> have our books been created uh, <laughs> yet? Some have, some haven't. Now take your work with angels, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked, shocked. Now we're getting personal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there you are. You see, there. I think a lot of my enterprises would fall foul if, if, if you had editorial control. I think I'd rather quail at the thought of sending them to your editorial desk because I'm not sure your judgment would be so capricious. I'd never know quite what mood you were in. 
whether or not my work on angels would get the imprimatur or not. Well, it does. My descent, unfortunately, our press is rather. It's deeper fluff. It's deeper fluff, perhaps more pernicious fluff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Zechariah Sitchin at least made a claim for deeper fluff in his translation, in his apparently uh, uh, learning, gaining the ability to uh, translate the Sumerian cuneiform writings and uh, give us fresh translations and interpretations of old texts and so on. He was at least making a claim for deep thought, and you're denying him that claim. So even there, it's hard to locate a given exemplar in the two-dimensional scale of fluff that we've agreed. Well, but his, his cosmology calls for a twelfth planet. Where is it? There's a site on the internet that claims that every 100 inch or more telescope on Earth is under the control of a worldwide conspiracy that does not want you to know that this 12th planet is clearly visible. Now, that's where I blow the whistle. Well, that's, but you don't need to do that. We just need a sophisticated, we need an cons- existing mechanism to extend it, a consumer's report on speculation books and in this consumer's report you'd have it would be like consumer's reports on washing machines and so on you'd have this theory here and then you'd have a series of columns that said any improbable requirement mm. and then you'd have requires 12th planet in this mm. column there'd be yes. a lot of that <laughs> <laughs> and then, then it would say uh, then the next one, evidence for special requirement, yes. and then for some of the, 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 some, the, the some small effect, and then it's a non known, and so on. Oh, well, I think that's marvelous, and you could do the Zetetic and Microsoft, not with, you know, concentrate on the New Age exclusively. All of these institutions are extraordinarily improbable. You know, Paul Feyerabend, in a wonderful essay in his book Against Method, points out that. 95% of the scientists who have rejected astrology cannot cast a natal horoscope and that the ability to actually cast a horoscope never seemed to be required of these high-toned scientific critics of astrology. It was something they felt perfectly free to dismiss without understanding. Quite, but you see, this should be the same. There has to be this dismissal level that we all operate, where there's certain things we pay attention to and certain ones we don't. Um, in my case, you know, I, I include UFOs. I don't include UFOs. I include telepathy and so forth. When it gets to UFOs, weird extraterrestrial chariots, conspiracy theories, the CIA, I turn off. I mean, there may be UFOs, but it's not something I take any interest in, really. Um, although I meet many people who tell me I should. So I think we all have our own criteria here, and and opinions vary, times change, and so on. Well, the hypothesis of causative formation, of course, favors deeper fluff. Deeper fluff. Uh, For example, uh, astrology, which I think is very interesting, I I think it's quite valid to reject it on scientific grounds without being personally able to cast a horoscope. Anyway, you can consult the World Wide Web and get a horoscope from any date and place. So um, the thing about astrology is that people say it works, and an argument could be made that even though the zodiacal reference 
frame that it's based on has no longer any basis in the sky, that it works because people believe in it, because it's in the M field, and it, because it's deeper fluff, basically. Homeopathy it, could be an example of a naked morphogenetic field. Mm. Nothing but belief. That this is very recent, started very recently. It must have built up this field very rapidly because for mm. a short time they did extensive research. And I think it could be that scientific research done according to the best principles has a greater weight in impressing itself upon the morphogenetic field or something. And the, the racial memory but, but is... This is actually a radical form of relativism because what you're saying is if enough people believed in the Urantia book, it would be true. Yes. No. Not. Not no. true. Work. It would work. Astrology works for people. Okay, alchemy no longer works because people stop believing in it because of but probably the real truth is that astrology works for the people it works for and the people it doesn't work for and never mention it and have moved on to something else. Well, there's extensive research oh, I in agree. It astrology has that passes all the tests of uh, statistical significance and so on. Well, there's some, but I mean, the reason people believe in it in newspapers and magazines and, and astrologers and so on is nothing to do with that evidence. They use it as no, a kind of background to do with astrology, really. And they say, yeah, I wouldn't call that astrology. No. Well, you see, I, I think that we, you could apply this, this approach of uh, this consumer-type evaluation approach to different sciences, too. And, you know, my latest thing in the Skeptical Inquirer, what I'm trying to do is extend the skepticism to the sciences themselves, and there's a very interesting paper in the current issue of the Journal of the History of Medicine on the history of double-blind techniques. Double-blind techniques were invented by Benjamin Franklin in Paris in about 1890, and they were investigated as Franklin was commissioned by, by uh, the king, Louis XVI, to head up a royal commission to investigate the claims of Anton Mesmer and the whole of Paris was talking about mesmerism, the whole of Europe was talking about mesmerism, animal magnetism and so on and Franklin and the members of the Royal Commission were firmly of the opinion that this was some kind of delusion that people believed in this but it, it might just be a product of their mind or their belief and so in order to test this they, they developed blind methodologies where people didn't know who'd been treated or who hadn't and their blind methodologies actually involve blindfolds, and that's why they're called blind. Hmm. They blindfolded people and then saw hmm. if they could still tell or detect the animal magnetism. Hmm. And often they couldn't. So the blind techniques were then later employed in the 19th century. They then became the standard armamentarium of the skeptics against these marginal phenomena, first applied to hypnotism and animal magnetism, uh, mesmerism. Then they were implied, in the 19th century, they were applied against homeopathic claims. People said it's all just suggestion. It's all just their belief. And so to test that, they already with this precedent, they used blind techniques. And some of them, I think, did turn out to be suggestion, but some were not. And the homeopaths took seriously this criticism. And for they were the first group in the whole of, med of scientific research to internalize blind techniques by running their own blind trials. 
They didn't just have the sceptical attack, they internalized it. Mm -hmm. This kind of debate went on in the earlier parts of this century against a lot of medical cures and claims, some of them apparently respectable the use of enzymes that would cure this or that. You know. um, and some of these were totally phony. How did you turn? It wasn't until after the Second World War that the standard randomized double-blind clinical trial became the norm in medical research, and it didn't really become widespread until the 50s or 60s. So this is another case of blind techniques being internalized. Within psychology at the beginning of the century, when they were studying phenomena of the mind known to be subject to distortion, blind techniques were used in psychology. They were used in parapsychology in the 1880s. They, they, they had the same thing and they started using them. The result of my survey of blind techniques published in Journal of Scientific Exploration and summarized in the, in the Skeptical Inquirer shows that this internalization of the use of blind techniques has in fact gone furthest in parapsychology. 85% of published experiments are double blind in recent journals. In medicine and psychology, where everyone pays lip service to the idea of blind techniques, in practice, the number of blind papers, or double blind, uh, is in the region of 6 to 7% of all published papers in the top journals. In, the, in British medical journals, it's about 6%. In the American ones, it's higher. I've just done a review of Annals of Internal Medicine, the New England Journal of Medicine, and the American Journal of Medicine, where the percentage of blind or double-blind trials is close to 20%. But that still leaves 80% of the papers not blind. Now, in biology, the number of blind papers out of over 900 reviewed is 0.7%. In the physical sciences, chemistry, uh, physics, inorganic and organic chemistry and physics, the number of blind papers out of hundreds of papers reviewed is precisely zero, zero percent. We then interviewed top professors in leading departments of uh, the physics, chemistry, biology, molecular biology department at Cambridge and Oxford and other universities. And there, most people in physics and chemistry departments neither use nor teach blind techniques. They're just not used, they're not known. In some physiology departments they do, in some they don't. In psychology departments, of course, they do. In the medicals, they teach them, at least. But at the most of science is totally innocent of the idea of blind techniques. The idea of scientific objectivity, so biased, so unlevel as the scientific faith on which modern science rests, is that just because they're scientists in these areas, they believe that by putting on a white coat, they become completely objective, not subject to the biases that bias chemists, uh, that bias... Uh, medical people, patients, ordinary people, observers of phenomena, where everybody is. They're objective, true, and so I think that a scientific investigation of this, I suggest using, checking out blind techniques in the laboratory, do you get different results in a physics experiment if you do it blind compared with doing it under open conditions? Actually do it by experiment. Does it happen? That's so biased has been this that there's no scepticism being extended to normal science itself. And in my consumer's report on different sciences, I'd have a column, blind awareness of need for blind methodology, use of blind methodology, percentage of papers using blind methodology. And in physics and chemistry, the awareness of the possibility of bias would be, have to be practically zero. 
and probably in the new age as well they both could profit from this it would probably wipe out most of the things mm-hmm. I'm objecting well, to well the popularity of the double blind methodology in parapsychology is obviously due to the difficulty of convincing people of the validity of the results and in other words under the a special weight of skepticism that's applied to the special fringe of speculation. So somehow there's a fundamental dialectic of the evolutionary mind. It has to do with the balance and interplay between speculation and skepticism. These are the two forces at work, and we want them to both be healthy and freely interplay. And then if a new technique like double-blind experimental work comes up, then the um, interplay of these forces will guarantee that it's used. Maybe, uh, Terence, that you're, uh, to summarize your case against the new, new Age fuzz, is that there seems to be an area in the evolving mind where the speculation is not balanced by an appropriate amount of skepticism. You want to shine a flashlight of skeptical consideration onto that area of unbalanced fuzz. We're interested in balanced fuzz here. Well, speculation and uh, skepticism begin to sound like uh, novelty and habit. So maybe these things are just counterflows in the intellectual life of the culture that redress each other. And though we do have certain long-running forms of fuzz, it does tend to correct itself uh, over time. But we are seeing in the present historical moment an incredible fragmentation, syncretic theorizing, and... uh, a, a richness of ideological competition that is just perhaps slightly overripe, but due shortly to uh, self-correct. Mm-hmm. Well, I, what I see is on the fringes a, a whole lot of small cults, like in California, all vying for space in Common Ground magazine, um, where you've got huge competing market, what's keeping all those in check is competition, and if one cult does particularly well, it grows, others fade away if they don't get enough supporters if people, this, there's a free market in these products, and there's a great deal of competition, and people who believe in pro, what, what are they a pro bono proctologist from distant star systems may not believe in some of the twelve existence of the twelfth planet, and are often in fact opposed to these other cults, so there is there's no uniformity, there's a free market, in fact a rabble of clamour of competing claims. On, that's on the fringes. The, the main ground is, is occupied by a kind of Stalinist central control of all government funding and official science, which excludes this stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that, as I suggested before, this, the, a real free market approach opening up, getting rid of this monopolistic control, which forces people out onto the margins, would allow a more informed debate. And I think there's plenty of skepticism around. The fact that these crazy California and Hawaiian cults are not reported daily in the New York Times is because the people who run the New York Times are skeptical. And a lot of the gatekeepers of the major organs of our culture are extremely skeptical, and I would say in some cases excessively skeptical of these things. It's not just the science community. 
It's the kind of hard-nosed New York Times editor community too. And in Britain, most of our newspapers have that not quite as hard-nosed, and they're slightly better, I think, allowing the unusual in. But the fact is that there's, in the mainstream of our culture, scepticism reigns supreme. And these things are actually forced to the geographical fringes, like California and Hawaii. And you, got, and you happen to live in that ecosystem of competing cults, etc. I live more in the world where scepticism is the dominant paradigm. So that there's a, a kind of bloom of superficial fluff now is merely a symptom of the rigidity of this um, monopolistic control system. Well, I think it means that it's forced into this kind of fringe, loony community. Mm -hmm. If these things were able to compete in the open marketplace much more, I, ordinary scepticism, common sense. Common sense I take not just to be our own individual common sense, but a sense held in common. In other words, a kind of common, a consensus view of what makes sense and what doesn't. And this changes with time. And it's hard to document because common sense fluctuates the subgroups and subcultures with different common sense. But this is what's actually the opinion that peer review committees are designed to constitute within that subculture. That's the common sense. This is worth funding, and that's rubbish. I mean, that's... It's, so it's the evolution of common sense, and I think that would be influenced by these players of habit, which common sense is generally conservative and, and novelty. And we've got that going on all the time, and I don't think that much of what we do or say about what ought or ought not to happen or propose criteria by which we have a fantasy of ourselves as editors of some jet science fiction. I think we've got a wrap here on fluff, honestly. I think we've completed a more or less Fluckian model for um, a bloom of fluff at this time. I'm not sure there is a bloom of fluff because there's always been, like in Norman Cohn's book on millenarianism, you read all these... Uh, uh, lunatic cults over centuries with Emperor Jones and people killing themselves and this, uh, these uh, gas people in Japan and, and, and so on. I, I don't know if it's... The, the, the fringe is larger now than before percentage-wise or I think the same the publishing industry would tell you that it's an incredible bubble fluff at the moment. A bubble in, in the popularity in of and that could have to do with the loss of uh, public faith in science and yeah. public faith in traditional religion and, which and is the other ingredient in the, the rise of fluff yes. new kinds of people are making their voices heard uh, people from outside the male patriarchal uh, uh, usual membership in the club and so they bring different uh, value systems and different notions of what constitutes truth and insight uh, people from outside western cultures and uh, dare we say it women, women. Yes. I mean there is it's not for nothing that the word mysticism is occasionally paired with the word menopausal Hmm. Never heard of that. Yes, but uh, I think in the complete, we've 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 had another five minutes. As you like. Yeah, yes. we can always edit. I think in in. I think that the, again, the free competition is the end because you have these different products, these different claims, and 
it is actually in the end sorted out by market forces. New Age has a big publishing thing. Traditionally with religions, you had competition between different sects. And if you have this thing, you have mutual criticism. It's been impossible in Europe since the Reformation to believe wholeheartedly the claims of the Pope without question because there's a whole group of people whose entire institutional structure, the Protestants, is designed to question and reject them. And in almost every issue of Christian doctrine, there's a set that affirms and another that disputes it. So there's a wide range of opinion, as there is in Hinduism, many schools of thought, Buddhism, different schools of thought. But I'm, I'm a little surprised because you seem to be implying that here is yet another area where the solution to all problems is the practice of untrammeled capitalism and the unleashing of unrestrained market forces. No. Welcome to the new millennium. Well, how, how diff- in England, where other, the Church of England is an established church, but there were Methodists, Baptists, Congregations, Presbyterians, etc., Spiritualists, Unitarians. As in America, I mean, we exported this diversity to the United States. It was founded in the midst of this efflorescence of religious diversity in England after the Reformation. The result of this was that they did compete, not through market forces in the normal sense, but they're competing for followers. And if the Baptists grow at the expense of the Congregationalists, they become more powerful. But all of these have been based on a kind of competition, different claims, and a kind of skepticism, because if it didn't come from within that group or church or sect, it would come from other ones about them. Mm-hmm. And in politics, you have this institutionalized. If you have two or more parties, their job is to be skeptical of the claims of the other. In law courts, we have the adversarial system where you have prosecution and defense, whose job it is to be skeptical of the other. In most walks of life, skepticism is normal. We expect it in politics, courts of law, etc. Journalism. Journalists are more influenced by politicians and courts of law than they are by scientists or the New Age. And there, the general rule is rules of evidence. Here, both sides of the argument. That's the norm, the human norm. It's only in science that anyone can imagine that you could have a sort of total pyramidal, hierarchical system of truth, textbooks or in schools all teaching the same stuff, the basic consensus view. It's like the church before the Reformation. And I think that's the problem, that because of that, we then have a fringe of sects and cults, like you did around the edges. You know, this is the Reformation model here is quite a relevant one. I think since the Reformation, this greater diversity has meant that no absolute claim by any church is going to go unchallenged, even by other Christians. And so skepticism and hearing different sides of the argument are built into our social model about religion. We know there are different religions on offer, different brands of Christianity, in some sense in competition with each other. And this is a much healthier situation than just having a single one. In science, because there's no way of these sects around the fringes ever achieving recognition, even if they were remarkably successful, take years and years and years before they'd ever get an NSF grant, generations. That there's a, I, I come back to this idea that dissolving central control in your line would probably be bad because you're speaking in terms of rejecting relativism in favor of some kind of absolutism, which is the alternative. I think it's still based on a kind of Baconian model of some kind of central control of science and thought. Mm. But the reality is that that situation doesn't exist today. It exists only in science. It's the only relic of that old world view. It's the only universal system which 
is not open to the normal processes of challenge from competing points of view, having to justify itself in terms of evidence and so on. This is almost the definition of science somehow, that it's to be an alternative to the diversity that has been experienced in world cultural history in the sphere of religion. Very early on, people knew that in every town they had different gods, and that was expected because there was no uh, um, burden of the belief in monotheism, and therefore uh, religion, as as far as um, theogony is concerned, had multiplicity of gods and goddesses and principles and spirits and forces and angels and so on and this multiplicity was acceptable even though some people thought their gods were more powerful than the gods of other ones they agree that we've got a lot of gods and probably there are other ones and so everything fit together in a context of diversity well early marketers uh, brought the news that gods weren't saying the same things in every place and that launched skepticism some said it would happen in 2012 and others in 2013 but uh, the the fact is that science appealed to people who had lost faith in religion because there was the I think now pretty well dashed hope that there could be a unique global planetary system of thought in which it's established the truth of everything relative to other things and that's why it would be possible many people would think it appropriate that there's a monopolistic control of the funding and scientific research because each thing is going to be supposedly to reinforce validate and confirm everything else because it's the idea of scientific truth now I think uh, the idea of a free market in science would have to require giving up the idea that there is some kind of absolute scientific truth and that a given question would be settled either true or false according to this universal canon. And uh, I don't believe in this idea. I think that's why I think that's why the free market and scientific research would be good. However, uh, I think that T- Terence, your insistence on clear thinking uh, represents a, a deep wish that there could be some um, more or less universal body of truth that we are expanding in the evolution of mind by testing um, testing new speculations for fuzz and saying eventually after at least 30 or 40 years of research that it is or isn't fuzz that is to say is consistent with a formal system of logic a kind of mathematical Aristotelian system of truth that is consistent with the object's provable theorem it's true or it's false and so on and this is the I think the, a kind of thinking which is now outdated and I hope which it'd be very nice if true but it's simply not something that we can really expect in any reasonable amount of time but, you know there are there are inconsistencies and furthermore we're used to we're used to accepting them so um it could be that if science was liberalized in this way and was released from the yoke of Aristotelian logic and, and proof and statistical significance on the level of 100%, then it would become very much like religion, where you would have uh, groups like Anabaptists and, and 
Hindus and Shivites and so on who would believe in this or that sub-logical system. And Environmentalists would be one such group. Yeah. Hmm. And, and you have to wonder if this kind of diversity is going to be acceptable by this uh, human species in the future or not. And what's the alternative? Are there some kind of death of the evolution of the mind? In the, in the dead-end road of a logical system, belief in a consistency of a logical system which is actually not consistent. Wow, how is that for a big question? Is the evolution of mind coming to a dead end? And if you're still hanging on, wondering how the three of them answered that question, well, so am I. What happened after you heard Ralph pose that question is that none of them said a single word for 11 seconds. And then they sort of let out a collective sigh and decided to stop the tape. And if you were my age, you'd be able to remember the Saturday afternoon adventure movies that were continued from week to week, and at the end of one show, the hero would be swinging over a pit of crocodiles on a vine that breaks just before the screen goes black, and a big to-be-continued sign appears to the collective groans of several hundred kids. Well, that's how I felt when this discussion just uh, ended. <laughs> My hope is that they'll pick up on that question at the beginning of the next tape, but uh, we won't know until I podcast it, and I'm not sure when that's going to be. Right now I'm planning on getting a couple of more of last year's Palenque Norte talks from Burning Man uh, podcast first, so until I get those uh, talks out, I'll I'll be waiting in suspense with, with you. By the way, did you... Uh, Catch that part near the end where Rupert was talking about how skepticism works well in the marketplace of ideas in everyday life, but that in science it isn't a balanced market because fringe ideas seldom have an opportunity to take root and grow. And uh, that has obviously been true in his own case, and now you can find uh, hundreds, perhaps thousands of other instances where the scientific community as a whole uh, rejects a radical new hypothesis right out of hand without any investigation at all. But uh, fortunately, the Internet is changing the new ideas marketplace a bit, and so we now have public investigations of uh, new technologies like uh, things like zero-point energy that the uh, Irish uh, Irish company Steron, I think their name is, uh, has made available for public inspection by a widely diverse and quite large group of internationally recognized scientists. Without the power of the Internet to communicate directly with potential researchers and investors, a small company like that wouldn't have a chance of creating a breakthrough of such magnitude. Let's hope their uh, tech stands up to the test that's now being given. Now, uh, I guess I'd like to uh, go to the old email bag and pass along some information and ideas from some of our fellow saloners. And the first one is from my good friend, The Dope Fiend, uh, whose podcast you can pick up at dopefiend.co.uk. In fact, Dope Fiend is uh, the founding father of the Cannabis Podcast Network, which is home to a wide range of programs that you might be interested in. In fact, uh, just this morning I listened to KMO's Psychonautica podcast for this week where he played an interview he did with Matt Palomary, who you've heard here in the Psychedelic Salon a couple of times. Uh, It was a a great interview, in my humble opinion. Uh, You know, it doesn't repeat anything from the interviews Mateo has done here in the Salon, and 
As always, uh, good job, Camo. Keep those podcasts coming. Anyway, uh, Dope Fiend writes, I wanted to comment on something your listener James said to you in an email at the end of episode 88, continuing the conversation on first-time psychedelics. While I agree that mushrooms, particularly the more friendly Mexican mushrooms, are probably a good starting point, I couldn't disagree more on research chemicals. Firstly, James seems to think that research chems are legal. This is categorically not true. Research chems are chemicals which have not been granted any sort of legal status by the FDA. The only way they would be legal is if the researcher had a special license to study them. In fact, the law states that any chemical not approved by the FDA, even if you discovered it yourself five minutes ago, is illegal. What's more, while mushrooms and other natural substances are known to have been used by people for hundreds of years, there is no real recorded history of use with many research chems, and so little knowledge of whether some people might have an adverse reaction to them. The exception may be those chems explored by the Shulgans, but even these are nowhere near as thoroughly tested and investigated as the natural psychedelics. As far as I see it, anyone taking untested chemicals is not only breaking the law, but far more importantly is taking their life in their own hands. Therefore, I'd say they're definitely not the best place to start one psychedelic experimentation. Good luck with everything, and I'll see you in the salon. Dope Fiend. I want to thank uh, Dope Fiend for clearing that up, and I have to admit that it was a failure on my part to not mention that at the time. Dope Fiend is correct in pointing out that this class of compounds, uh, loosely called research chemicals, while they may not be listed on any of the DEA schedules, almost all of them do fall under the analog drug law, which is a truly insidious piece of legislation. I don't want to get into a long discussion here about the insanity of the war on drugs because there are a lot of other places and podcasts that focus on that issue. But as Dope Fiend pointed out, it really is important to have your facts straight about the legality of these substances. Basically, if a plant or chemical makes you feel good or opens your mind to cosmic awareness, (laughs) well, it's probably illegal unless protected by a powerful lobby in Washington. Even more important, as he points out, however, is the fact that while there have been thousands of years of human use of these psychoactive plants, most of these chemicals aren't much older than a single human generation or so, which really isn't much time to build up a safe morphogenic field around. The bottom line here is uh, that Dopefiend and I agree that, uh, particularly for a first-time experience, research chemicals are not the best choice. Another email that I'd like to comment on is one that came from Marco, who joins us in the salon from his home in the UK. And after saying some very kind words about his enjoyment of these podcasts, he writes, It was Chateau Hayuk who pointed me to the website in the first place, so kudos to them for helping to spread the word. Well, Marco, that's really nice of you to let me know how you found us, and uh, I want to thank Jock and the rest of Chateau Hayuk for making the connection. And Marco also uh, attached a picture of some art he created, and I wrote back and asked if I could post it on our blog, because I think that many of our fellow saloners will resonate with it. And, of course, he said yes. Uh, otherwise, I <laughs> otherwise I probably wouldn't be telling you all this, would I? So, uh, if you stop by the program notes for this podcast, you'll see what I mean. And you can find our program notes page just by typing Psychedelic Salon, all one word, psychedelicsalon.org in uh, your browser's address box. And 
that'll get you there. So uh, thank you, Marco, for sharing your art with us. Another Saloner turns out to be someone I heard interviewed on KMO's Sea Realm podcast a few weeks ago, and that's Nat Bletter. Nat uh, is an ethnobotanist, and I'll put up a link to his work on cross-cultural medical ethnobotany with the uh, program notes for this podcast. Before I forget, I should mention that I'm going to begin answering some of the more general email questions on that same program notes blog that you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. That way I can answer some of the more frequently asked questions in a place where they might reach others who are thinking about the same thing. And so this weekend I'll, I'll add Nat's comments about the fairy dream flower, and I've also got a few more questions about ayahuasca that I'll try to answer uh, in the notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which is the official name of the site you'll find at psychedelicsalon.org. Now, getting back to the email Nat sent, it appears that an earlier email he sent didn't get through my rat's nest of spam filters, and I missed the fact that he was going to be speaking at the Ayahuasca Monologues Lecture in New York City with Daniel Pinchbeck and others. But the good news is that it's now available online. And I just checked the link that uh, Nat sent, and it took me to a very interesting-looking list of a whole series of Ayahuasca Monologues. And each one appears to be available in online video. So I'll post uh, that link with the program notes for this podcast, but I'd better warn you that uh, this looks like one of those websites that'll suck you in for a while. And as soon as I get this podcast posted, that's where I'm heading. So, uh, Matt, thanks for the information, and uh, thanks for being here with us in the salon. Before I go, I want to once again thank our fellow saloners, Terry, Corey, Patricia, I think you go by the name Patty, actually, and Adam, uh, all of whom sent in donations to the Psychedelic Salon in the past couple of weeks. I really appreciate it, you guys, and uh, thanks for everything. Also, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharelike 2.5 License. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage. And for any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions that you might have, well, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Thanks again to my friends at Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the Salon, and also a big thank you to you for being here with us again here in the Psychedelic Salon. So for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.